The following talk was given at the Insight Meditation Center in Redwood City, California. Please visit our website at audiodharma.org. I read a cartoon several years ago about this magic medicine where two people could take a pill, and once you had shared the pill, one person would say, under, and the other person would say, stand. And you would know what was going on in each other's minds. And tonight, I wish I had pills for everyone. I could just say, under, and you say, stand, because there's a lot to cover. Um, the topic is Buddha nature, and the topic is further, what's wrong with Buddha nature? Um, we in America tend to be very eclectic in our religious, our approach to religion. Jewish people like to practice vipassana. Christian people like to practice yoga. Um, when we become Buddhists, we not only like to bring along some of our old beliefs, but we also like to add a few extra ones on top. For instance, Rumi has now been made a Buddhist, the Buddhist poet laureate. <laughs> <laughs> kind of like the Mormons um, baptizing your ancestors <laughs> after the fact. <laughs> And not only do we take things out of non-Buddhist religions, but we like to mix our Buddhisms. Take different bits and pieces that we like from Mahayana, Vajrayana, Theravada, whatever. Um, put them all together. There's a good side to this. There's something wrong with the speaker? Okay, okay. The good side is that we pick up more skills. We expand our range of knowledge. We expand our range of approaches to the problems in our life. Um, and a lot of times the different traditions can benefit from cross-fertilization. The problem is that sometimes new elements come in that we bring in and we don't realize that they kill off some of the good things we already have. Um, you might think of this as a garden. We have lots of different flowers in our gardens and many times we like to add more different kinds of flowers because they're pretty, add more trees because they give us shade. But sometimes you'll bring in a new plant that will kill off some of the good plants you already got. It's like deciding that you want some more shade in your garden and you bring in some pine trees and some eucalyptus trees. And you get fast shade, but you find out after a while that they're killing off your flowers. And in the same way, um, in the Theravada tradition, um, more recently in America, the idea of Buddha nature has kind of snuck into the tradition. And it does provide some shade. It gives a sense of self-esteem, a sense of confidence when you're practicing it provides some emotional warmth for what can often be a dry technique. Many of the Vipassana techniques can be very dry, the noting technique or whatever. And the idea of Buddha nature gives a certain sort of sense of warmth, something that you can connect to emotionally. And so we may hear that the Buddha himself never mentioned Buddha nature. You would think that if anybody was qualified to talk about Buddha nature, it would have been the man himself. Um, but the Buddha never mentioned it. But for most of us, that doesn't really matter. We find that the idea of Buddha nature is actually very helpful. It's a good tree to add to our flower garden. But tonight I'd like to talk about the fact that, one, there are other teachings in the early teachings that actually do provide shade. And at the same time, they don't kill off the flowers. And that Buddha nature actually does kill off some of the flowers in the practice. Um, so first I'd like to address some of the issues of how say, a self-esteem, sense of confidence, and sense of emotional warmth are provided by the early teachings. Um, 
Living here in California, we all know the history of self-esteem. <laughs> kids are taught in schools, got to have self-esteem in order to learn, but many times self-esteem comes before any kind of skill, which is backwards. I mean, you learn self-esteem by mastering skills first. And traditionally, this is how self-esteem was generated in the teaching. You start out by learning how to be generous. From generosity, you develop virtue. When you think about the times when you've been generous in the past, when you think about the times when you're virtuous, in other words, you could have harmed somebody, you could have gotten away with it, but you decided it was beneath you, or you decided out of the goodness of your heart that you didn't want to harm them, you gain a sense of self-esteem from that. Another way the Buddha was taught self-esteem to his son was saying, if you make a mistake, don't be afraid to talk it over with other people, and then learn to resolve not to repeat that mistake. And many times this is where genuine self-esteem gets developed. It's by learning how to admit, yes, I did make a mistake, I'm not ashamed to state that I made the mistake, and I'm happy to learn from anybody who wants to teach me. What this develops is a sense of yourself that's a very healthy sense of self. You know, I, I'm the kind of person who can learn from his or her mistakes. You may have heard the story, I think I've mentioned it in some of the contexts here, about um, <clears throat> a graduate school where they teach brain surgery. And they had the problem of deciding who to admit and who not to admit into the school. Because you know, people who apply to brain surgery school tend to have good grades. <laughs> but not everybody with good grades is going to make a good brain surgeon. Um, and so the question was, when you interview the candidates, what questions do you ask? And one of the prime questions they found that was really helpful in basically separating the sheep from the goats was that you would ask the person, can you tell me about a mistake you made recently? One. And if the candidate said, no, I can't think of any mistakes I made recently, you don't want that person operating on your brain. You know? <laughs> Second question, though, if they said, okay, I did make a mistake, then the next follow-up question was, how would you do it differently? Okay, that's the kind of person you want to have operating on your brain, someone who can recognize a mistake and then figure out how to correct the mistake afterwards. And it's the same way that you build self-esteem. Now you can see one of the reasons why Buddha nature was brought in as a eucalyptus tree to provide some shade for meditators. Because this way of developing self-esteem, by being generous in your life, by being virtuous in your life, by learning how to be the sort of person who admits mistakes and can, and can correct them, that's, nothing you, that's not something you can assume when somebody walks into a retreat. That everybody has this level of self-esteem or has this kind of foundation. Sometimes you can talk about, you can say, okay, think back on your generosity, think back on your virtue. And the person might think, oh my gosh, I've never been generous, I haven't been virtuous, and they go into a spiral. So sometimes for the sake of a retreat, you might tell somebody, well, think about your Buddha nature, your innate goodness, that kind of thing. Um, that might get them through the retreat, but it doesn't get them through the practice. We want, as you know, we're taking on the practice as a long-term project. We want to have something a little bit more solid. This is where teachings and generosity and virtue come in. Secondly, in terms of emotional warmth for the practice, um, again, retreat centers were not the original context for practicing Buddhism. It was communities of people who practiced together, where you had a sense of basically extended family practicing together. So you'd have a community of support. Secondly, um, good strong states of concentration were taken as as a given. That this is something you want to develop in the practice because it gives a sense of emotional well-being. You just sit there and breathe and you feel good inside. So that when difficult issues come up, you've got a place that you can um, 
you can go back to. And so this, this is some of the way the, the Buddha taught a long-term approach to providing shade for your garden. In other words, it's like growing oak trees. It may take a little time, but the kind of shade they give doesn't kill the flowers. To provide you with confidence, the traditional teaching is that all you need is a human body and a human mind. You don't necessarily need Buddha nature. The fact that you're a human being is enough. In Thailand, in the history of the forest tradition, this was a theme that a John Mudd would repeat many, many times. Because you have to remember, his many of his students were children of peasant families. If you live in a peasant family in Thailand, you've been taught from a very early age that you don't have the connections you need, you're not going to get ahead in society. And you know, the, the society really puts its thumb down on people from poor families. And yet here was a meditation movement that came from the poor people. And a lot of it had to do with that teaching was, okay, you've got what you need. You can, all you need is a human body, a human mind. You've got all the resources you need in order to become awakened. There's a passage in the canon where the Buddha, excuse me, in this case it's Ananda, comments that um, conceit, and by here he means simply having a, a good solid sense of who you are, not necessarily you know, overweening pride, but the conceit of having the confidence that I can do this is an important element of the path. And it's simply based on other people can do it, they're human beings, I'm human being, why can't I do it? That's really all you need in terms of confidence on the, on the path. Now this kind of confidence is grounded in reality, however, because there are dangers in the human mind that <clears throat> you've got to watch out for. The Buddha once said that the mind is more variegated than the animal kingdom. You stop and think about it. How many kinds of animals are there in the world? I mean, they're uncountable. You've got all the animals that fly, all the animals in the ocean, all the animals on the ground, in the ground. Um, and yet the human, the human mind is capable of greater variety than that. We can do all kinds of good, but we can also do all kinds of evil. We have that potential. On top of that, on top of that the mind is very changeable. Uh, one time the Buddha, actually, who was a, an expert in finding apt similes, he once said, there really is no apt simile for how fast the mind can change. We might say it can change in the twinkling of an eye. That's too slow. We change faster than that. And so you've got this changeable mind that's capable of all kinds of stuff. Now part of it, the good part, is that it can be trained. And you may have heard the passages in the canon where the Buddha talks about how the mind is luminous. And when the Buddha is talking about the luminous mind, he's not talking about Buddha nature. He's talking about the fact that it's basically that you're simply aware. We have this state of awareness. We can know things. We can be alert to things. Um, and it's because of this alertness, he said, that you can be trained. Now, we're not training for the luminous mind. It turns out, further along the path, the luminous mind is the most elemental form of ignorance. When you can finally get to the most luminous state that you can imagine in the mind, you eventually have to let that go. Keep that in mind, because we'll be dealing with that further on in the, in the, in the talk. Secondly, sometimes you see in the forest tradition they talk, they talk about the Buddha you have inside you. And again, they're not talking about an innate goodness. They're talking about the fact that you have this awareness in you, which you need to sort of dig out and look at, again, so that it can be developed. Sometimes you may see in the writings of Ajahn Chah his reference to your innate Buddha, your innate ground of being. Um, don't trust every translation you read. You have to watch out. Um, I ran across this the phrase one time in one of John John Cha's talks, "ground of being," 
and I don't want to mention the translator. Um, and I said, you know, I think I know Thai pretty well, and I don't think there is such a word in Thai. And I asked a number of my Thai friends, and they said, what? Ground of being? What the hell would that mean? <laughs> so, watch out when you read translations. So, when the Buddha is talking about the luminous mind, he's simply talking about the fact that it can be trained. But also that it has to be trained. As I said, it is very changeable. And the mind has a big problem with delusion. We have all these potentials in the mind, and one of the big potentials is to misunderstand our potentials. Something we think is good can also be, could possibly very, you know, be very, very harmful. And the only way you can see through your delusion, and think about that, how are you going to see your own delusion? Because by definition you're deluded. <laughs> um, you, greed you can see, aversion, anger you can see. Delusion is really hard. And the Buddha said there's only one way around that, and that's to look very carefully at what you do. Look at what your intentions are, look at what you're doing based on that intention, and then see the results. So you have to get very specific. We're not dealing with delusion in the abstract. We're dealing with it each time it comes up. So you have to, in his instructions to his son, Rahul, he says, before you do something, look at your intention. If you expect harm, don't do it. While you're doing it, if you see any unexpected harm coming up, stop. Once you've done it, if you see any, if you see any long-term harm that came up, you know, resolve not to repeat that and then go talk it over with somebody. So you're dealing with specific. It's not the only way you can get around your delusion. This is a theme that keeps coming up again and again and again in the Buddhist teachings, that when you're meditating, you're looking at your intentions, you're looking at what you do. You're looking at actions. You're not looking at your, your innate nature. You're not looking at your innate self. In fact, your sense of self is a kind of action. And you want to see when it's skillful, and sometimes it is, and you also want to see when it's not. So he said that our, innate, that our skillfulness in the practice does not come from Buddha nature or trusting in Buddha nature. It comes from heedfulness. Now, heedfulness, you have to remember, is based on the idea that your actions are important and it's very easy to make a mistake, so you want to be very careful. But you also have the potential to do a lot of good with your actions. If you didn't have that potential, okay, you would, um, it, wouldn't be any, it wouldn't make any difference whether you're heedful or not. But it really does make a difference to be heedful, to be careful. The second quality the Buddha said is appropriate for awakening, or most important for awakening, is appropriate attention, learning how to look at things in the right way, asking the right questions. In this case, the questions are not, who am I, what is my true nature, but the questions are, what am I doing? What are the results of what I'm doing? Are they skillful or are they not? Based on those questions, you come up with the Four Noble Truths. You know, there's skillful causes and unskillful causes, good results and bad results. That gives you the Four Noble Truths. Each of the Four Noble Truths has a different task. And that's why it's important to understand this as a basic framework. When you're meditating, you're not going to do just one thing. You're not just letting go. You're not just noting or whatever. There are four things you can do. One is to comprehend suffering. The second is to abandon the cause. The third is to realize the cessation of suffering. And the fourth is to develop the path. So there are potentially four different things you could do given any situation in your meditation. And in order to figure out which is the appropriate one, you've got to be able to sort of divide up your experience into those four categories. So what all this comes down to is it is important in the practice that you keep focusing on what you're doing with a sense of heedfulness and applying appropriate attention so you know what to do. States of concentration come up, you don't just watch them pass away, you try to develop them.
when anger comes up, you don't just watch it for a while, learn how to accept your anger, invite it in for a cup of tea. Um, you learn how to say, how can I get rid of this anger effectively? So this is a different test you've got to do. Now the problem with, with Buddha nature as a concept in the practice is that it distracts you from these activities. It distracts you from heedfulness and distracts you from appropriate attention. The concept of Buddha nature comes basically in three types. I'm going to cover, <coughs> speak briefly about each of the three. First one is the idea that you already are enlightened. The in, the inside you is this already enlightened nature and the practice is simply a matter of letting it come out. The second idea is that you have the potential for enlightenment, which has to be cultivated. And the third is that Buddha nature is the source of all being, that we all have this Buddha nature in common. And that we're trying to do in the meditation is trying to get back to that source. Now each of these, they sound nice, but they have problems. First one, the idea that you're already enlightened. Um, <clears throat> the <clears throat> when, you when you pursue this idea a little bit further, you run into the idea that Effort, any effort in the meditation will obscure any vision of your innate nature. Question, okay, if we're already enlightened and yet we're suffering, that must be because we're, we don't see our true Buddha nature. The reason we don't see it is because we're efforting in the practice, so you don't want to do any effort. So that right there immediately cuts through the four tasks of the Four Noble Truths. The path is, in this, in this view of the practice, is simply one of just letting go. And that leaves out all the other three of the other tasks. Secondly, what this teaching says is the most important thing about us is something we all have in common, which means we don't really have anything to learn from anyone else when you pursue this further. I've, I've talked to some people who've <coughs> practiced with this idea and they come up to that conclusion and said, I don't really need a teacher. I, my Buddha nature is already awakened. What do I need a teacher for? So if everything that we have, what's important about us is something we have in common, our differences don't matter and not, there's nothing to be learned from anybody else dangerous position to put yourself in. It breathes complacency and finally it cheapens the whole idea of Buddha. I mean, if, if we all have Buddha nature, and what, what use is it? We're still suffering. <laughs> or a story, I don't know how time to, I have gotten that time to tell a story. I knew this guy who was um, get, first getting interested in Buddhism in New York. He was out one day jogging with a friend. And his friend was a, a long-term Buddhist in a particular school. And they were jogging behind this one woman who wouldn't let them pass. You know, they'd try to move to the left and she'd move to the left. They'd try to pass on the right, she'd move to the right. And so <clears throat> finally they got to a wider path, point in the path so they could get around her. And this guy did something. I'd never heard of this term before until I heard this story. Did he slimed her? Do you know what sliming is? It's when you're jogging and you're all sweaty and nasty and you go up and you rub up against somebody. <laughs> 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 And so, <clears throat> after he'd slimed the woman and got past her, um, jogged on a little ways, and he turned to his Buddhist friend and he said, I, I guess that really wasn't very nice of me, was it? <laughs> and his friend said, oh no, that was the expression of your Buddha nature. You have to, express, you have to accept your Buddha nature for what it is. And so this guy came back to the person who told me the story and said, if this is what Buddhism is about, I don't want anything to do with it. Um, but even if you're not around, around sliming people, it still cheapens the idea of the Buddha that we could still have innate enlightened nature that's already enlightened and yet we're still suffering. There's something wrong with that idea. So, so get past that idea. Something that seems a little bit more reasonable is the idea that Buddha nature is a potential that we have within us. It's something that naturally unfolds as we do the practice. This particular version of Buddha nature is 
more useful in that it does recognize the need for effort. But then it, the question comes, effort directed at what? And exactly what is the effort doing? If it's just simply providing the circumstances for which this innate nature can unfold, um, well, it, it creates some problems in exactly what you're going to be looking for in the practice. And also the question of exactly what are you directing effort at? You're trying to direct your effort at seeing this Buddha nature, making it more and more clear. But this leads to a very different approach to the practice. It's not so much one of heedfulness and appropriate attention. It's just kind of digging out the Buddha nature that's already there, um, or, or potentially there. There was a koan I saw one time. And you know how you read the koan, and many times you say, what? This is one koan. I read it, when I first read it, I said, oh, here's a koan I understand. And the koan is this. Teacher sees this uh, fire in the zendo, and it's burned out. All you see is ashes. And so he asks the student, is that fire totally burned out or not? And so the student goes in digging in the ashes with his tongs, doesn't find any embers, and he says, looks like it's totally out. And then the teacher goes in and he digs around with his embers, and digs around with the tongs, and he comes up. One last ember is still burning. So I read that and said, oh, I understand. The student thought they had gotten rid of all of his defilements, but the teacher said, no, there's still some defilements left. See, here, here's one for you. Um, I was told, however, that the explanation was that the student had not seen his Buddha nature and the teacher showed him that there really was Buddha nature in there. You're looking for something very different in the practice if that's your approach. Um, secondly, in the question of what you're doing, you miss the whole idea that when a potential that you might have is tested by seeing how it, what kind of actions it results in and what kind of results come from the actions. Because remember, you've got to deal with this delusion that we've all got, that we're, we can be confused about which of our impulses are skillful and which ones are not. Again, the Buddha repeatedly would say, just keep looking at your actions and his teachings on dependent co-arising. There was once a monk who asked him, you know, you talk about rebirth. Well, what is it that gets rebirth, or gets reborn? And the Buddha says, that's not an appropriate question. He says, look at the process. When there's clinging, there's going to be birth. You're not asking who's born or the birth of what, but you say, we're going to look directly at the process. So what are you doing that's causing the clinging that leads to that particular action? If, however, you look at this, this approach is obscured when you take the idea that um, we're here in the, process, in the practices, we're looking for the natural unfolding of our Buddha nature. Sometimes you see this expressed in the idea that there are moments of grace in the practice. If you think, you know, that suddenly there's this clearing in your mind, and, and for some reason you don't understand, the meditation is going well. And if you simply accept that as a moment of grace, you're not going to go back and look at, well, what, do I, what was I doing two, three seconds before this happened? And secondly, if you go around with the idea, somebody up there likes me. How many of you in here have you read the book Sirens of Titan? Oh, very small group. That's really sad. That's one of the great Dharma classics of American literature. <laughs> Um, it's a book all about the idea of the idea that, you know, my life is going well because somebody up there likes me. It's one of the worst ideas you can have. <laughs> You've got to look at, okay, exactly what did you do before that moment of, quote, grace, unquote, grace came? Because that's what you're here in the practice for, is to look at your actions to see what's happening. Secondly, the idea that you, you simply trust in the process and it seems magically to work. 
um, that discourages from questioning what you're doing. Because the practice is a combination of trust and questioning. You've got to combine the two in an intelligent way. A good example is the way a scientist would approach a particular problem. You have to trust that the problem is worth looking into. You have to trust that you've got a hypothesis that might work. That's the element of trust in the practice. Then you've got to question, okay, does the hypothesis really work? Have I really figured this out? And then you're willing to put it to all kinds of tests and be willing to say, here, that maybe the hypothesis is wrong. Well, but at least you're pursuing a question that you trust me, that you know is important. It's the same way when you're practicing. You have to trust the Buddha in the sense that you practice concentration, you practice virtue, you try to develop discernment. But in the course of doing that, you're not just following orders. You want to figure out, well, what's good about concentration? Why should I bother with this anyhow? What is this doing to my mind? What am I learning about the mind as I do this particular practice? A really good example of this is in a John Lee's autobiography, when he mentions that when he first heard about the idea of monks going out in the forest, he said, that's crazy. The forest is dangerous. It has animals. They bite you. They sting you. Um, what was that? Hobbes, in Calvin and Hobbes' comment, and if nature doesn't sting you, it has to... <laughs> and that was a John Lee's original reaction. I mean, he'd lived as a peasant. He knew what it was like to go out in the woods. He said, I'm not going in the woods. But he said the Buddha over and over again would say, it's really good to practice out in the woods. So he gave the Buddha the benefit of the doubt. But he still kept questioning, I want to see what are the results here. And then he talks about eventually, over the years, he began to learn. Okay, you see a lot about yourself you wouldn't see otherwise. The forest animals out there teach you heedfulness. They teach you lots of good lessons about the mind. And you're also forced to really, look, you know, take refuge in the practice. There's a great passage in the, in the Taragata in the Pali Canon where this one monk says, I'm out in the forest, there's nobody around, I'm sick, what am I going to do? And of course, do you want to go back and find a doctor? I'm going to stay here, I'm going to develop the five strengths, I'm going to develop the seven factors awakening, the eightfold path, that's going to be my medicine. You've had that kind of learning how to depend on the practice in that way. You find areas of the practice or you find potentials in the practice you wouldn't have seen otherwise. So what you're doing here is you're taking the Buddha out of where you trust, okay, there must be something important here, but you're also questioning, what is it? You're using your own practice as a laboratory. And that's how you're going to learn from the practice. Because it's only when you develop the skill, or only when you look, carefully what you're doing, that you can actually develop the skill and the practice. Once you're skilled, you want to look at it again to see what you've learned, so that eventually, once the practice has done its function, okay, then you can let it go. The states of concentration, the states, you know, the wisdom you gain, that has to be abandoned at a certain point in the practice. If you don't abandon it, it's like the raft going across the river. As long as you're going across the river, you don't want to let go. You get swept down. But once you've crossed the river, okay, then you really do have to let it go. You can't carry it around. You can't carry something, or you can't let go of something until you really understand it. So again, the, the practice is not one totally of trust. You trust up to a certain extent that this is important, that this has good potential for training the mind. But you also have to be willing to question it. And trusting in Buddha nature that's going to develop naturally simply by doing the practice, that obscures this particular approach where you gain more and more insight. Finally, there's the idea that um, Buddha nature is something that you attain at the end of the practice when you finally come in into contact with the source of all things. This is a, a state of, this is a particular, what should I say, 
it's an assumption that can often come when you gain into the, get into the form of attainments. You get to a state of infinite consciousness in which you see things arising and passing away and they don't touch that consciousness at all. You say, my God, this is it. I've arrived. Defilements arise and pass away, but they don't touch the state of consciousness in my mind at all. Or you may be in a state of nothingness, or a state of neither perception and non-perception. And, um, and yet you have, to, you have to remember that the Buddha said, when we're here not to attain these states, we're here to go something further, to nirvana, which is not the source of anything. It's not where everything comes from, because you can't really trace things back to the first source. Say ignorance is the big problem in life. He says you cannot find where is the first source of ignorance, but you can see what you're continuing to do right now that's keeping the ignorance going. And he gives a long list of things. You've got these hindrances in your mind. You've got inappropriate attention. You've got unskillful actions. So again, what he keeps pointing you back to is what are you doing right now that's keeping the ignorance going? If you, you learn how to stop that, okay, then you can then you can gain get beyond the problem of ignorance. Once you've gotten beyond the problem of ignorance, then you don't really care where things came from. Because you've solved the problem. So again and again and again, the Buddha keeps pointing. You've got to look at your actions very carefully. The purpose of the practice is to set the mind up in a state of stillness, a state with confidence and self-esteem that comes from virtue and generosity. So you can really look at what's going on in the mind without any denial, without any blind spots. And you begin to see, what am I doing that's skillful, what am I doing that's unskillful? And as you get more and more sensitive, you drop the layers of unskillfulness. And what you find, until you finally let go of every area of activity, then you see what's left. Or if you've assumed, you attain a state of luminosity in your mind, a state of great compassion, and you just stop there thinking that this is my innate nature, you blind yourself to the fact that you're doing something to keep this going. There still may be ignorance in there. So this is, these are the ways in which the teaching on Buddha nature distract you from you know, the real purpose of the practice is to look, look very carefully at what you're doing right in the here, right now. So the point of this talk is basically that, you know, as I said earlier, that there are teachings in the earlier teachings which are very useful in providing the self-esteem we need, the sense of confidence that we need in the practice. We don't need to depend on the idea of Buddha nature. And we're really better off without it. Because we, as, as reminded that but as the Buddha said, the mind is very variable. It can do all kinds of things, and it can change in, in faster than the flash of an eye. And so you have to be heedful, and you have to use appropriate attention to figure out, what am I doing right now that could be more skillful? And it's, in, it's focusing on that issue of the particulars of your action right here and now. That's what leads you to something that lies beyond. So I would propose that we sort of put Buddha nature aside and focus on in this particular case, some of the earlier teachings, which I think provide the shade that's provided by oak trees and other nice trees that don't kill your flowers. So those are some of my thoughts on the topic. Uh, I'd like to know what your thoughts are. Yes? Buddha mind is the same Excuse idea. Excuse me, would you, yes. would you please get the microphone so you can ask the question so we can get it on the uh, recording? Okay, I repeated that question already. So. Any other questions? The, um, um, the thoughts or images or et cetera that arise in the mind, mm -hmm. you're equating those up as almost the same as one's actions? Exactly. Thoughts are actions. Right. Okay. Mm -hmm. 
And so the observing of, of the rising of those and sussing out the the source or the well looking first when you look at your thoughts the Buddha's first question is it is a skillful thought or is it an unskillful thought and the only way you're going to see that is to go where does this lead and if you don't see a particular thought leading in a particular direction you say suppose I thought about this for 24 hours where would it lead me to? And you, say, and you see pretty quickly that thoughts that have to do with sensuality, thoughts that have to do with ill will, thoughts that have to do with harmfulness, lead in a bad direction. The notion that these thoughts are not acted on, and they're fleeting, mm -hmm. but they reoccur, mm -hmm. um, is there any notion of the duration of those thoughts, or the, the, I guess, how much you either ponder, wallow, or entertain yeah, the, the idea of entertaining is important. How much do you want to entertain a particular thought? Um, and there are certain thoughts that we are really protective of. You know, we really like our particular sensual desires and our opinions and things. And um, you have to ask yourself: Is this really my friend, or is this going to be one of those? You know, like the, what was that movie, The Gremlins, where these cute little things came up, and as they got older, they developed fangs. You know. <laughs> and a lot of our thoughts are like that. They look at the cute and the nice, you know, pet them, and then, then they, they turn around and eat you up. Um, there's that great science fiction story of these astronauts who have this. They're, they're going from planet to planet to planet, and they've got this uh, machine on their on their on their missile on their on their landing landing vehicle, which tells them, you know, the friendliness of a particular population of a particular planet. And so they land on this one planet, and there's little furry things running around outside. They're climbing up the, 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 the landing vehicle. And, uh, and so they turn on the meter, and it's just pegging out. These are really friendly little creatures. And so they decide to open the door. They open the door, and the creatures come in. Just eat them up. <laughs> <laughs> so you have to watch out for your friendly little thoughts. You know? <laughs> Question over here. It wasn't clear to me when uh, when you were referring to Buddha nature. You said we have to depend on earlier teachings. So the concept of Buddha nature comes from later teachings. Later, and is Mahayana. that another the Mahayana? Yeah. Okay, that's what I. That's what Specifically, it started out in response to the question: Here we are, such defiled beings with all our bad actions in the past. How could we possibly ever attain awakening? And the problem with that, it starts out with this essentialist idea of who you are, that you are essentially defiled. And that somehow what you're doing in the practice is changing your nature. And from the earlier teachings, the Buddha said, you know, what you are is an activity. You can always change your activities. Your sense of who you are is something that you can keep constructing all the time. And if you look at your sense of self, you realize that it's not just one sense of self. It's a whole team. It's a whole committee. And who you are right now is very different from your sense of who you are at work or who you are driving down the road or in your family in various different circumstances. And we're always creating these different senses of self. And sometimes they're a team and sometimes they're the Chicago City Council. <laughs> but the fact is that you have so many different senses of self as they can observe one another. And basically they can help each other along. Because the Buddha was not saying all, all ways of selfing are bad. 
if you have a sense of self-responsibility, if you have a sense of self, you know, a well-grounded sense of self-esteem, those are actually useful senses of selves. Those are a type of self that you want to nurture for a while on the path. But the idea of Buddha nature did not come until much later in the teaching, and then from there it developed in various ways. And we're talking, you know, 800 years after the Buddha. It's a hand back here. Hello. So early does not mean like early in the Buddha's career. It means historically. Historically, early. Yeah. And you say, you say it's a matter of thousands of years. It's a good 800 years after after the Buddha, the idea of Buddha nature came up. Why such a quiet group? <laughs> Um, when I mentioned Sirens of Titan, there's a character in there who's just by sh sheer dumb luck. Somebody up there must like me. And then he has a bad run of luck. He gets kidnapped and is taken off to the planet Mars. You know, I, I do have a preference for science fiction. Um, <laughs> And but he starts thinking on the planet Mars. He's being he's being he's been kidnapped to be taken to this army that's going to come back and attack Ameri attack, attack the world. But the problem is he starts thinking up there, so they have to keep clearing out his brain. And then it, and then okay, he finally gets his brain so he can start functioning again. And then they set off to attack the planet Earth, and the spaceship that he's in gets to go to Mercury instead. So the, all the Marsians die in, in the attack on Earth, and he's the only one that's left. And then finally, after many years, he finally makes his way back to Earth. And in the meantime, they've come up with this new religion, which heaps abuse on the idea that you know, you know, if you have advantage over people, it must be because somebody up there likes you, that you, you deserve to be ahead of other people, you deserve to be on top of other people. And um, so our guy comes back, and he still has that idea. I mean, after all, he survived he Mercury and all this other stuff, and he comes back, and He's been made, he doesn't realize it, but he's been made the evil man of the new religion. So he suddenly finds out that he was the evil man. And the worst thing he could have said would have been, oh, gee, somebody up there must have liked me. <laughs> and so he's taught, okay, you're going to go on public TV and you're going to say, I am the beneficiary of accidents. <laughs> that's, that's where it parts, parts ways with the Dharma. But, um. <laughs> But there's a lot of good, other good passages in the novel. My favorite one is when he's in Mercury. His idea of Mercury is that Mercury is this huge honeycomb crystal. And because one side is facing the sun all the time, the other side is facing the cold, the crystal sings. And there are these little beings on Mercury. They're like little kites. And they have cuts with suction cups on each of the corners. And they just latch on to the crystal. And they can live off the vibrations. And they have two messages that they send to each other through the vibrations of the crystal. One of the messages is, here I am, here I am, here I am. What I like about that is um, they don't have to eat each other. All they have to do is feed on music. 
And this is, this is Kurt Vonnegut's argument against the idea that we're living in the best of all possible worlds. The best of all possible worlds would be if the earth sang and all we had to do was sort of suck into the vibrations. We didn't have to eat animals, we didn't have to kill each other. Um, so you can, it doesn't take much imagination to think of a better world. So, um, back to our nature, if we have one. Mm-hmm. Um, suppose you're sitting meditating and your mind has gotten very still. Mm-hmm. Um, and, uh, uh, but pop, thoughts keep popping up. Uh, maybe you're skillful and very still and quiet, and so you don't latch onto those thoughts, you let go of them. Um, uh, and so these thoughts just sort of skitter around the surface very lightly. Um, but they still keep coming. So where do they come from? Why does your mind do that? Because it's used to doing that. It's got an habitual. You can unlearn it. And one way of unlearning it is to notice when the thought comes up, is there any pattern of tension in your body? Can you notice that prior to thoughts arising, there may be a tension someplace. It might be in around your head, it might be in your arms, it might be in your fingers and your hands. Try to see where is the tension, and then can you relax the tension? What happens to the thoughts? And the, the purpose of this is to realize that you can catch the formations of thoughts earlier and earlier and earlier as you do that. Because you get more and more sensitive. The slightest bit of tension there, you finally get to the point where you realize that sometimes there's this little sort of disturbance in the energy of the body, which you could either keep as a It depends on the label you put on it. You say, okay, that's just a disturbance in the breath and I can breathe through it. Or you can say, oh, here's a potential for a thought. Now, do I want some entertainment? <laughs> and not, you know, nine times out of ten, the, your untrained mind is well. Ten times out of ten, the untrained mind will say, "Yeah, let's go for it." <laughs> and my experience, my experience is, is the thought just creates more bodily disturbance, more tension. Exactly. But you can you can, you can attack it from the bodily side by breathing through the tension. Kind of irons out that tension, and the thought's going to go away. So there's a, a strong correlation between your your body being relaxed and your mind becoming relaxed, right. and vice versa. Right. I mean, this is one of the reasons why Chinese because there's all this tension going on in your body when you're trying to figure things out. You've got to keep this thought in mind, so there's a little bit of tension in your knee as kind of that that locator, and that thought you keep in mind, so there's a little bit of tension in your shoulder to keep that located. And you've got really complex thinking patterns going on. Your body's going to be carrying a lot of stress around. So if you can get to the point where you're very during meditation, you're very aware that you really aren't thinking, mm-hmm. uh, and then your body becomes more relaxed. So th- this is where the sense of peace, peacefulness, comes from. Would, would that be right? Yeah, but you have to be very alert to protect this. Yeah. Thank you. Thank you. Mm-hmm. Um, so do you disagree that we have a Buddha nature or do you just disagree that it's a useful 
postulate. I don't think it's a useful. I don't think it's a useful concept. But you think it's true. Well, I mean, so with, with the concept, that, that's true, with the concept, like, the question is: do you, do you have the potential to be awakening? The question, the answer is yes. Now, is that part of an innate nature that is naturally unfolding? Well, not necessarily. It can it can unfold and it can refold. You know, mm-hmm. you can't trust that it's going to take care of things. Um, and you know, the Buddha was very careful about you know saying, okay, there are certain questions that are worth pursuing and certain other questions that are not worth pursuing. And the ones that are not worth pursuing, he wouldn't really answer them. You know, one of the most famous ones is this wanderer comes in to the Buddha and says, you know, is there a self? And the Buddha doesn't answer. He says, well, is there no self? And the Buddha doesn't answer. And you would think, well, this is, you know, this is a basic question that people should ask. You know, is there a self? Is there no self? What, what is myself? And the Buddha says, those are, un- those are not useful questions. Now you think about it, you know, for 800 years after the Buddha was alive, people were gaining awakening and they, had, they didn't have any concept of Buddha nature. And they were doing perfectly fine. It's really not that... It, occasionally you might say, you know, if you're on a retreat and you're feeling really bad and you're think, trying to think of all your generous actions in the past and they just kind of wither away in your sight, you can't think of anything else, you might say, well, I do have this potential. But you don't have to call it Buddha nature. Just say, hey, I'm a human being. That's enough. There's a question here. Mm-hmm. You, you mentioned Chinese medicine or something. Mm-hmm. But well, I've always wondered, because I study that, I've studied that a lot, um, why the Chinese have to have moving meditation and the Indians sit in poses, whereas in uh, dance, moving meditation, which moves the body to move the breath to focus on awareness. Mm-hmm. don't see it in Indian and Thai medicine. What you do see, though, is you're using the breath energy and moving around the body without having to move the body. I remember when I first went to study with the John Fu and I was doing yoga. And he said, you know, you, you, can do, you can get the same effect sitting still by moving the breath through the body. I don't, I don't see the power, but I don't see that they're incompatible. Question over here. Um, you were answering this question about um, maintaining stillness of mind, and my question is: Is it more useful to try to maintain stillness of mind, or to inquire about? thoughts and where they come from and what, the, what they mean to you. Well, when you maintain stillness of mind, then you put you in a position, better position to look into the thoughts. I, you want to be able to do both, but the stillness makes it a lot easier to see what's going on. Because once you've had practice in what I call zapping the thoughts, so that you can turn them off at any time, okay, then you're in a position, you can kind of welcome in, okay, let's look at you. Because if you see, then you look at a particular thought, because you've got to be able to observe it from the outside. 
rather than getting into it. You want to see where is the point where you get into the thought, that you get sucked in. I mean, that's what's called birth in, in sort of the dependent core rising. Now, if you've already got, you're already skilled at not getting in, then you're much better positioned to watch the thought and to see exactly where was the point where you make the choice to go in. So ultimately, you want to be able to do both, but the foundation of looking into the thoughts and understanding them as processes comes from getting the mind still first. That's an essential, that's an essential skill. Because we do have this tendency, you know, that it's like we're standing in the corner and a car drives up and we say, hey, come on, and we jump in. And then after they've driven off, we say, hey, wait a minute, who are you? Where are you going? <laughs> if we lived our lives like that, you know, we'd all be dead someplace out there. <laughs> and so you have, to be, you have to develop the skill not to jump in. If you're then going to be able to question the person, okay, who are you? Where are you going? Why should I believe you? Don't take candy from strangers. Yeah. So don't take candy from your thoughts. Yeah. Okay, it's time to wrap up. Okay, well, thank you for your attention. Hope this has been useful.